Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Support for today's episode of Truth and Justice comes from ABC Network's new weekly drama series, Conviction. Each year in America, thousands of people are wrongfully convicted. That's why the Conviction Integrity Unit was assembled. Follow the investigations of this elite team who have only five days to determine if the seemingly innocent should be set free. Conviction is inspired by real events and it's from the executive producer of Criminal Minds. Conviction stars Haley Atwell and it premiered on October 3rd and it shows on Monday nights at 10, 9 central on ABC. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and unfortunately, I once again have to tell you that the David Dobbs interview has been delayed. Hopefully, most of you listened to the follow-up episode on Friday, where I explained all this in detail, but the short story is Mr. Dobbs talked to me this week and said he wanted to wait another week because he's still looking for some documents and doing research. And like I said, I explained that in much further detail in the follow-up episode. And regarding the follow-ups, I didn't mention this in last week's episode, but from this point forward, we will be dropping a second episode every week. We'll still have the normal main episode that will drop on Sunday mornings, but then we will be dropping a second episode every Friday morning at 6 a.m. The purpose of the second episode is to give you an opportunity to chime in on whatever was going on that week. The process as we move forward is going to go like this. The main episode will drop on Sunday, so this is episode 242. You'll have until Tuesday afternoon to send me your feedback, and there's several ways that you can do that. You can send me questions, comments, or theories to our Twitter feed, Facebook, or email. Now what I'm asking for you to do is when you're sending that feedback to use the hashtag with the episode number. So for example, if you have any feedback, a question, a theory, or a thought about this week's episode, tweet at me, send me a Facebook message, or email me, and make sure you use hashtag 242. So if it's an email in the subject line, put hashtag 242. And obviously on Twitter, we use hashtags all the time, 242. And on Facebook, at the end of your message, just put hashtag 242. Those are the hashtags that we're going to be searching through to find the questions that we're going to answer on the air in the Friday follow-up episode. Also, on Tuesday nights, and this should be routine unless something's going on that particular week, but the plan is for every Tuesday night from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, I'll be opening up the phone lines where you can call in, and we'll just take a few calls for you to ask me directly any of your questions or discuss theories or anything like that. 
So quick summary, main episodes drop on Sunday. You have between Sunday and Tuesday to send in any questions through email, Facebook, or Twitter. And then Tuesday evenings from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, I'll be opening up the phone lines to take calls. That follow-up episode will drop on Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Now, as far as today's episode, instead of going on and on and continuing to hold our breath for the David Dobbs interview, I'm just going to hope that that happens in the next week or two. But until then, we're just going to keep on trucking. And in this week's episode, there's two things that I want to discuss. In the first segment today, we're going to talk about how Edward Eights got indicted. We've discussed in length how he was convicted. There were some shady tactics used by the prosecutors, some major failures by the defense attorneys, and all of that followed up with a judge that issued two dynamite charges to a jury who did not want to convict Edward Eights. But the big question that I want to talk about in the first segment of today's episode is how did he get indicted in the first place without any evidence? And the answer to that question can be found in a supplemental police report filed by Detective Dale Huckel in February of 1994, six months after the murder occurred. So we're going to be breaking down that supplemental report and cross-referencing it with trial testimony and police interviews. And in the second segment today, we're going to discuss a major revelation that was found just this week in a document that I had buried in a bunch of files that I just discovered was there on Monday. So prepare yourself for segment two because it's going to make you sick. But before that, let's get into Dale Huckel's supplemental report. Let's start out today by discussing the timeline of Edward Eight's conviction. We begin with the murder that happened on July 22, 1993. The, and I'm using air quotes here, investigation went on for about 30 days until Edward Eight was arrested about a month later in August of 1993. From that point until the spring of 94, Ed sat in jail until he was bailed out. But Ed wasn't actually indicted of this crime until June of 1994. That's when the grand jury convened for the indictment. Now, typically what's happening during this process is the police are crossing their T's and dotting their I's, forensic analysis is coming back in, and the prosecutor is building his case to present to the grand jury. The problem with Ed's case was none of the evidence was coming back in the favor of the prosecution. The semen that they sent out for testing came back and turned out to not be the same blood type as Ed Eight's. He was ruled out. All 200 hairs that were found on the scene, none of them matched Ed Eight's. The blood that was found on the scene did not match Ed Eight's. The night after the murder when Ed was picked up, he didn't have a single scratch on his body or a drop of blood on him. His shoes were tested for blood. Negative. No blood. There was blood under Elnora's fingernails, but the blood type came back to be a match to Elnora and not to Edward Eights. His DNA wasn't found on the cigarette butts in the bathroom. All of the fingerprints that were found on the scene were sent for testing, and none of those were Edward Eights. Other than the Kubia call, none of the evidence collected suggested that Ed Eights committed this murder. Well, now the police had a big problem. They only investigated one suspect. They put all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. And at the end of the day, they had nothing on him. At this point, the police shifted their tactics and stopped looking for evidence, and I believe they started creating it. Now, we've all heard several times about the towel and the Jolly Rancher wrappers and the car seat pushed back. 
Remember, these were all things that were not in the initial reports. Now, these are the actual reports that we're waiting for still from Smith County with our open records request, so I haven't seen them, but they were discussed in length at trial. Remember, Jason Waller did the initial crime scene investigation and says that he was the one that processed the car and he made no mention whatsoever about the seat being pushed back. He also didn't take any photos of the seat pushed all the way back. He didn't find any of Edward Eight's fingerprints in the car. But somehow later on by a trial, he has this story about the seat being pushed back that he made a, quote, mental note of. Well, I think the pending indictment hearing probably goes a long way to explain why he suddenly remembered something like that. And it's the same thing with the towel, and it's the same thing with the Jolly Rancher wrappers. I personally believe that none of those things actually existed. But at this point, the prosecution was going to have to go before the grand jury and ask them to indict a man when literally every single piece of physical evidence pointed the other direction. Well, when you have a case like this, as you're preparing to take it for the grand jury, the police build a very long report. You have the initial reports, you have supplemental reports, follow-up reports, and they all end up being one long document. Well, in the clerk's record, where I got all of my documents and evidence, the only police report in there is a five-page supplemental report from Dale Huckel. And I'll have this up on the website this week, and you'll see at the bottom of the page, Page 1 of this report is marked page 36, and page 5 is marked page 40. The fact that this document was found in the clerk's record seems to be an indication that this is the report that they used to get their indictment. And if you only read this five-page report, it seems like it's a pretty strong, almost an open-and-shut case. But as we're going to break down here over the next several minutes, not only is this supplemental report inaccurate, but it also contains some bold-faced lies. So I'm going to start with page one of this report and just point out some of the inaccuracies here. And some of them may sound subtle, but when you put them all together, they make a pretty convincing case. For example, on the first page, Huckel writes, While Deputy Mallard was briefing me on the statement she had already taken, it was learned that Kubia Jackson had called Miss Griffin around 10 p.m. on July 22, 1993. And it continues to go on, but the thing to note here is that he says that Kubia called Miss Griffin around 10 p.m. I believe there is purpose in that statement. You see, what Kubia actually said was that she called sometime between 9.45 and 10.30 p.m. Now, in order for Huckel to build his case, it's important that he pushes that call back or earlier as far as he can. Because while it did become apparent that Ed had lied about how he got to Monica's apartment, she never did come off the fact that he was in fact there that night, and her mother confirmed that. Now in all of her early statements, she says that he was there between 10 and 11. Now we know by trial that story changed to him not showing up until 11.20, but in the initial call from Deputy Cheney, and in her first police interview, we know for a fact that she said that Ed arrived at her house between 10 and 11. Well, her house is 20 minutes away from Ed's house at a minimum, so if Kubia's call came in at 10.30, that starts to create a problem for them. So rather than put into this report what Kubia actually said, which was between 9.45 and 10.30, they just say she called around 10. Huckel goes on to write, Miss Kubia Jackson advised me that when she spoke with Miss Griffin on July 22nd, Miss Griffin seemed to be okay, but that Miss Griffin had advised her that she was sitting there talking to Edward Lewis. Miss Kubia Jackson advised me that she asked Miss Griffin, who? Miss Griffin's reply was, Edward Lewis, you know, Mrs. Dew's grandson. 
and that Miss Griffin would call her back a little later, but never did. I'm still waiting to get Kubia Jackson's actual written statement and the transcripts from any of her interviews, so I have no way of knowing right now if that's accurate or not. But what I do know is that in Edward Eight's first police interview, which was the night Elnora's body was found, Huckel clearly states to Ed that Kubia had put in her statement that she called Elnora, Elnora said, I'm sitting here talking to Edward, she said Edward who, and Elnora responded, Edward Eight. And what's interesting about this is Ed is quick to point out that Elnora did not know his last name. She only knew him by Edward, and she did know Ed's grandmother very well, and her last name was Dews. And she also knew Ed's mother, whose last name is Jackson. She had no way of knowing that his last name was Eights. So it's almost like Ed pointed out to the police at this point what the flaw was in their theory. They couldn't project a narrative that Elnora said that she was talking to Edward Eights because Elnora didn't know that his last name was Eights. Now to be fair, it is possible that Kubia did say Edward Lewis and Huckel just misspoke here. We won't know if that's the case until after we get this open records request back from Smith County. But getting back to the supplemental report, I have to say that Huckel did a great job of crafting a narrative and directing the minds of the grand jurors to follow his narrative. And let me give you an example of what I mean here. The next paragraph reads, Deputy Maller advised me that Edward Lewis Eights did not put anything in his statement about talking to Ms. Griffin on July 22nd. Now, prior to this point, he is just referred to as Edward Eights. And as you'll see, after this point, he is referred to as Edward Eights. But right after he writes a paragraph that says that Kubia told him that Elnora said she was talking to Edward Lewis, in the next paragraph, he refers to Ed as Edward Lewis Eights. It's almost like this next paragraph was used to corroborate the paragraph before it. And like I mentioned at the outset of this, the issue here is not any one of these inconsistencies. It's when you put them all together as a whole where it seemed to create a pretty compelling case against Ed. Now the next paragraph reads as follows. Ms. Kubia Jackson and Ms. Pryor advised me that after Ms. Griffin's body had been found, Miss Dews, Edward Eights, Kelvin Eights, and themselves were talking about when the last time anyone had talked to Miss Griffin, and when Kubia told them what Miss Griffin had told her on July 22nd at approximately 10 p.m., and there he is again narrowing that time down to 10 p.m., Edward Eights denied being there and talking to Miss Griffin at that time. Here's the problem. That entire paragraph is a complete fabrication. It never happened. When I first started talking to Ed about this case, one of the first things I brought up to him was Kubia's statement, and I asked him if he had discussed this with Kubia on the crime scene that night. And he told me he didn't think Kubia was there that night. He doesn't remember seeing her, and he certainly didn't talk to her. The first time I talked to Margie Jackson, I asked her the same thing, and she told me the same thing. They never had a conversation with Kubia. She did remember Kubia showing up at some point, or she thought maybe she did, but she said that she never talked to her. And when I spoke with Kelvin, he also confirmed that he never talked to Kubia that night, and he also didn't know that she was even there. And then when I talked to Kubia, Kubia told me that she never spoke with Ed, Kelvin, or Margie on the crime scene that night. And when I talked to Johnny Pryor about what happened that night, she also told me that her and Kubia were separate from Ed, Kelvin, Margie, and Mrs. Dews. They were all up at their house while Kubia and Johnny were down at Johnny's house. So that's literally every single person that's mentioned in this paragraph have all confirmed to me that this conversation never happened. This is nothing more than a bold-faced lie to advance the police narrative. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, in the next paragraph, Hugel writes that after hearing about these inconsistencies, that he went up to Mrs. Dew's house and told Ed that there were some inconsistencies in his statement and that he needed to come down to the police station to answer some questions. Sounds reasonable. The problem is that this also seems like a lie. Ed told me from the very beginning that the reason he went to the police station was because Detective Huckel came to him and told him that he needed to talk to him about a robbery. Ed told me that he agreed to go down to the police station with his mother to figure out what they were talking about. He had no idea he was being questioned about the murder. Now, I understand that this is Ed's word against Detective Huckel's word, but there's an indication that Ed's story is true found in the transcripts. You see, after the entire police interview, at the very end, Ed asks Huckel, are we going to talk about the other thing? And Huckel says, no, not at this point. On page 39 of the transcript, Ed says, are we gonna, and Huckel interrupts, we're going to wrap it up here pretty quick. H comes back in, okay, talk about what you was talking about earlier, that too. Huckel says, no, we'll wait and do that another time if you, if you can, inaudible. It's getting kind of late, unless you want to do it. And Ed's mom interjects and says, no. And Eight says, are you ready to go? And then that's the end of the interview. So it's clear here from this transcript that there was something discussed earlier that never got brought up in this interview, which is consistent with what Ed told me, which is the reason he went down to talk to Detective Huckel is because he said he wanted to talk about a robbery. And if that's true, then the last paragraph on page one of the supplemental report is another fabrication. And here's another really weird detail. So Ed has always told me that when they went to the police station, that he sat down in Detective Huckel's office, and Detective Huckel... Deputy Cheney and Captain Bobby Gorman were the ones that were in the office along with Ed and his mother. He's told me that he is positive they were in Huckel's office because he remembers sitting there staring at his desk the whole time and there was a big wooden plaque that said Detective Dale Huckel on it. After reading this report, I've asked Ed several times, are you positive it was Huckel's office and you weren't in Waller's office? And he's told me over and over and over again. No, we were in Huckel's office. I specifically remember staring at that plaque and it said Detective Dale Huckel. But let me read you the top paragraph of the second page of this report. Myself and Deputy Cheney transported both Edward Eights and his mother, Margie Jackson, to the sheriff's office. Once we arrived at the office, we went to Detective Waller's office to conduct the interview. So the first question I have to ask myself is if Ed's right, and this is a lie, which it appears to be, what's the advantage here? Why would they say they were in Waller's office? Well, as we read on, we find out. The next paragraph has several stars next to it, indicating that it's important. It reads, 
It must be noted that myself and Detective Waller had cleaned his office that same evening before we left at 5 p.m. to go home, and Detective Waller's trash can had been emptied of all trash. As you're about to see as we move on here, I believe the purpose in them saying that they were in Detective Waller's office is because they have a chain of custody issue with the Jolly Rancher wrappers. The next paragraph reads, Once inside Detective Waller's office, I installed a new blank audio tape in Detective Waller's recorder and turned it on at approximately 11.12 p.m. on July 23rd and started the interview with Edward Eights with his mother Margie Jackson present. Now, it's not a huge deal, but I'd like to point out here that now that we've moved away from Kubia's statement, he's back to referring to him as Edward Eights again. A couple paragraphs down, it says, During the interview, Edward denied being at Miss Griffin's residence at 10 p.m. on July 22nd. Now, again here, we're looking at the subtle inconsistencies. Kubia says that she called Elnora between 9.45 and 10.30 p.m. And when you read the transcripts of Ed's interview, you'll see that Hugel states that that was between actually 10 and 10.30 p.m. And when you read the transcripts of the interview, you'll see that Hugel says later in the interview that the call came in between 10 p.m. and 10.30. He doesn't even say 9.45. But in this report, earlier he just says around 10 and now as we move forward, it says, at 10 p.m. He's making sure as he writes this report that he's pushing that time forward up to that 10 p.m. mark and away from that 10.30 p.m. mark. Goes on to say that Ed told him that he was not in Miss Griffin's trailer that night, that the last time he had been there was about a week prior when he was helping Miss Griffin get rid of a beehive, in which that part is actually true. According to Ed, that did happen, and he did say that in the interview. That about a week prior, he'd went to Elnor's trailer. They looked all over the place for some diazinon or something to kill the bugs with. He eventually left to go get some gasoline and use gasoline to get rid of the bees. The report says that Ed did see Miss Griffin on the night she was murdered, but it was about 5.30 or 6 p.m. at his grandmother's house after she got off of work, and that he told her he would be by the next day to weed-eat the grass. It goes on to say that Ed told them that on the night Elnor was murdered, that his girlfriend Monica had picked him up around 9.30 or 10 o'clock, and he had went to her apartment. He says that he left her apartment around midnight. You guys are all already familiar with that part of the story. But then as we move down further, we find what may just be a mistake. But this paragraph reads, Captain Garman had talked to Monica Bush by phone, and Miss Bush denies picking Edward up and also denied taking him home. Well, that's sort of true. Monica did deny picking Ed up, and she did deny taking him home, but it was not Captain Garman that called her. It's a little unclear in the interview transcript who made the call, but at trial, we see Deputy Steve Cheney testifies about calling Monica during that interview, and Monica Bush also testified about Deputy Cheney calling her. Remember, she said that she was very upset because Cheney called her and immediately told her that Ed had killed this woman and he had sodomized her and raped her and started telling her all these horrible things trying to get her to change her story. So we know it was Cheney who made the call, but for some reason it says that Garmin is the one that made the call in this report. Other than that, this seems pretty accurate, but there's something that's missing from this paragraph, and that's the part where Monica had told them that Ed was at her apartment between 10 and 11 p.m., we know from the trial transcripts that during that phone call, Monica said that he was there around 10, and also that the next day she interviewed with Dale Huckel and told him the same thing. Now that story changed by the trial five years later where she said he didn't get there till 11.20, but this is just six months later, and maybe she had already changed her story by then. But Huckel made sure not to mention in the report that she has an inconsistent story, and that her initial statements on that phone call and the next day were actually consistent with Ed's story, other than the fact that she's not the one who picked him up. 
Hugo goes on to say that he asked Ed if the shoes that he was wearing were the same shoes that he was wearing the night before. Ed said that they were, and he asked Ed to give him his shoes so he could look at it, and he scraped a substance off of the shoe. Now, this next paragraph, according to Ed, is just made up. It didn't happen. And this is absolutely Ed's word against Dale Huckel's, but it certainly does a good job of projecting his narrative. As you know, we never get any scientific confirmation that it was actually feces on his shoe. But Huckel puts in this report, After the interview ended, I transported Edward and his mother back to his grandmother's house. As they were getting out of the car, I overheard Edward tell his mother that he must have stepped in, quote, dog shit on his way down to Miss Griffin's house earlier. Now, it's very convenient that this wasn't said during the interview when it was being recorded, and it wasn't even said directly to Huckel. It was supposedly just some hearsay that he overheard. But it seems to confirm the way it's written in this report that Ed is conceding that it was, in fact, feces on his shoe. When the reality of it is, I personally don't believe that it is feces. It certainly doesn't look that way in the evidence bag. It looks like dirt or sand. And Ed has told me from the beginning that when Huckel scraped it off, it came off like sand onto a piece of paper. He said he scraped it onto a white piece of paper, looked at it, smelled it, wasn't sure what it was, and then poured it into a bag. But according to this report, Ed was pretty sure that it was feces. On the next page, Huckel says that he had returned to the crime scene. It was discovered that Miss Griffin's purse, checkbook, and bank card and keys were missing. It also notes that the car was parked behind the trailer, quote, where Miss Griffin never parks the vehicle. And it also points out that the driver's side door lock was broken. In the next paragraph is where the Jolly Rancher wrappers are introduced. It states, Detective Waller noticed a used Jolly Rancher watermelon candy wrapper in the trash can of the guest bathroom, which seemed to be unusual because Miss Griffin only had peppermint candies in the little bowls all over the house, and no other type of candy or candy wrappers were found in the home. Now, what's missing from this paragraph is the fact that as Detective Waller noted at trial when he testified, he had just made a mental note about that candy wrapper. And they didn't return to collect it as evidence until the next day after the crime scene had been turned back over to the family. But we're supposed to take his word for it that it was there the night before. And now we get back to the reason that he made the big note with all the stars that they were in Waller's office during the interview and that they had emptied the trash can at 5 o'clock before they left for the night. The next paragraph reads, after returning to the office, Detective Waller found a used Jolly Rancher watermelon candy wrapper in his trash can. No one had candy in Detective Waller's office, and the trash can had been empty before the interview with Edward Ates. Captain Garman did not eat candy, nor did Deputy Cheney or myself. I did not see Margie Jackson eat anything, but Edward had something in his mouth after I had returned from using the phone. It sure is unfortunate here that they question Ed in an office only with an audio tape with poor audio quality instead of using the interrogation room with the video camera. I wonder why they did that. But for the grand jury's sake, when they just read this report, everything flows nicely and fits together perfectly. Waller found a watermelon Jolly Rancher wrapper on the crime scene, which didn't seem to fit there. And then Waller found a Jolly Rancher watermelon candy wrapper in his office where Edward Eights had been. The dots seemed to be connected. Except for one thing. Ed has never seen this report before. He never really realized the significance of the Jolly Rancher wrappers and didn't know how they were saying they collected them. But as you remember in the very first interview we did with Ed back in April, he told us about the candy wrapper. But he says the way it happened was he went to the bathroom, and when he left the bathroom, Bobby Garman walked into the bathroom behind him. 
He says he went back into the office, they started the interview again, and Captain Garman walked back into the office holding the Jolly Rancher wrapper with a rubber glove. He had went into the bathroom after Ed and said that he got it out of the trash can. Now, Ed had no reason to lie about this. He didn't know this was significant, and he didn't know what this report said, but he remembered specifically that's the way it happened. He's told me that he can still see in his mind Garmin walking back into the room. He said he wasn't wearing the rubber glove, he was holding it and holding the wrapper in it, and that they put it into an evidence bag. So now we see why it was so important that they were in Waller's office. You can't pull a Jolly Rancher wrapper out of a trash can in a public bathroom when you didn't witness who put the wrapper in there and claim it as evidence. And at the time, I'm sure the purpose behind grabbing that wrapper was not because there was a Jolly Rancher wrapper back on the crime scene. It was because anything that's in the trash can, the police can grab without a warrant to test for DNA or fingerprints. But since you would have a hard time proving to a jury or even a grand jury that that wrapper came from Edward Aids, this interview had to have taken place in Waller's office. It was the only, quote, clean room. Remember that note they put in there. They had cleaned out Waller's office before he went on vacation, and the trash can was empty, and the only thing in the trash can was a Jolly Rancher wrapper, and Ed was chewing on something in his mouth. Therefore, the story shifts from grabbing it out of a public bathroom trash can to pulling it out of Detective Waller's trash can. Makes for a better story. Now, as the report moves on, Waller now states, on July 24th, so that would be the Saturday, the next day after they interviewed Ed. I interviewed Monica Bush at the office and tape recorded her statement at that time. Again, she denied picking Edward up and bringing him to her apartment or taking him home. Now here we see again, that part is true, and it definitely helps to promote the narrative. But what's missing from that paragraph is that again Monica told them that Ed showed up at her house between 10 and 11. This is a completely one-sided report that only promotes their narrative, and anything that would be in conflict is left out. Now, the next paragraph is interesting, and it's something you wouldn't think of, but consider this. The paragraph reads, After interviewing Miss Bush, myself, Detective Waller, Detective McKay, Captain Garman, and Assistant District Attorney David Dobbs went back to the crime scene. While at the crime scene, I observed Edward looking down towards Miss Griffin's trailer, and we went to talk to Edward. Captain Garman asked Aids if he would give us permission to look in his room. Edward did give us permission and took us into his grandmother's house and to his room. Nothing was found there as evidence, and nothing was taken. Seems legit. He was making clear in the report that there was nothing inculpatory found in Ed's room. So what's the purpose of that paragraph? Well, let's go back to that Jolly Rancher wrapper. Waller says that he made a mental note that that Jolly Rancher wrapper was in the trash can in the guest bathroom, but he didn't collect it as evidence. But then the next day, this day, this trip, they went back and collected that Jolly Rancher wrapper as evidence. So why would they put this paragraph in here pointing out that they searched Ed's house and searched his room and found nothing and took nothing? They made clear to say that they took nothing. What they don't say in this report is that during that same trip, after they were in Ed's house, in his room, where they, quote, took nothing, they went back down to the trailer after it had been turned over to Elnora's family and after they were done with their crime scene investigation, and they go collect this wrapper from the trash can on the crime scene. I'm not even going to say it. I'm just going to leave that right there. 
Hugo goes on to say that he explained to Edward that day that he had again checked his alibi and that it didn't check out. And again, he doesn't say anything in this report about the fact that Monica did confirm the time when he got there. It was just the way that he got there that she denied. And it says that Ed told him that he wanted to correct something from his statement and that Hugo told him that he needed to come into the station to do that for a recorded interview, which he did a few days later. Now I'm going to read you the last paragraph from page three of this report. During this interview, Edward changed his story about how many times he had been inside Miss Griffin's house, but did not change his story about how he got to and from Monica Bush's apartment. Ed did go into detail about where he and Monica parked at her apartment. Edward stated that they parked right in front of Monica's apartment and not on the east side behind the laundry, that Monica saw him walk around when he left. Edward was asked to describe the inside of Miss Griffin's home and what he did while looking for diazinon to kill wasps. Edward described the inside of the trailer just as it was found the night Miss Griffin's body was found. He described the kitchen sink and drawers that were left pulled out. When asked if he had ever sat down inside the house, he described sitting in the dining chairs and in the same position the chairs were left the night Miss Griffin's body was found. I'm just going to say it. This is bullshit. This is not what was said in that second interview. Ed did not change his story about how many times he had been in Elnora's trailer. It's clear when you read the transcripts from Ed's second interview that Huckel misunderstood him in the first interview. In that first interview, Ed did deny being in Elnora's trailer on the night of the murder, but he did say that he was in her trailer before that to help kill the wasps. Huckel starts a second interview by saying, You told me that you had never been in her trailer. And Ed is clear to explain, no, I didn't say I had never been in her trailer. I said I wasn't in her trailer that night. I was in her trailer when we were looking for the diazinon to kill the wasps. So first of all, that part is just complete BS. Huckel is lying in this report to make it look like Ed is completely changing his story. And then as he goes on to say that he was describing the crime scene exactly is also bullshit. In the interview, Huckel was asking Ed to tell him where they were looking for the wasp spray. One of the places he mentioned is that they looked in the cabinet under the sink. He also said they looked in the back room, they looked in boxes in the closet. He was not describing open doors and open cabinets the way they were found in the crime scene at all. The cabinet under the sink was just one of the places they looked for the diazinon, which is a logical place to find diazinon. And as far as the chair's position at the dining room table, that was also bullshit. Hugel asked him if he'd ever sat at the table, and Ed said yes when he got there, Elnora had to go back into her room and get dressed, and he sat down at the table and waited for her. He didn't say anything about the two chairs being pulled out in that position. This is just a bold-faced lie to bolster up his narrative. On the next page, we get back into Elnora's car. Paragraph 2 says, Due to the fact that the car was parked in a place that Miss Griffin never parked it, and her car description and photos were shown to several people around Monica Bush's apartment complex, and two people have given statements that Miss Griffin's car was parked on the east side of the apartment south of the laundry, the same direction that Miss Bush saw Edward leave towards, it is this officer's opinion that Edward Ates drove Miss Griffin's car to Monica Bush's apartment the night of July 22nd. First of all, this is kind of a strange leap of logic. Elnor was killed in her trailer, her body was found in her trailer, and her car was found at her trailer. And immediately the police theory is supposedly that the killer got into her car and drove away with it and then brought it back. 
Now, I suppose that they could be doing this because they know that Ed was at Monica's apartment, and she says she didn't give him a ride. So I'll give him a pass on that one. But it says that the photos were shown to several people. But from the trial transcripts, that doesn't seem to be the case. It appears from the trial transcripts that they only went directly to Jesse Nelson's house. Jesse Nelson is the individual with a rap sheet as long as your arm, and who was currently on probation and was put there by David Dobbs. David Dobbs, Huckel, and another officer all went directly to him and questioned him about the car. And he gave a statement that on the night of the murder, which was just four days before this, that he saw that car parked out there late at night, and he was sure it was that car, and that he had never seen that car in that parking lot before. So even though I think there's some problems with that statement from Jesse Nelson, and if you read his trial testimony, you'll see that there's a lot of problems with his testimony, that part basically is true. But the second person who identified the car was Jesse Nelson's stepson, Cedric Walker. And what they failed to mention in this report that came out in trial was that according to Cedric Walker, that was not Elnora's car in that parking lot. Let me first read you Cedric Walker's actual written statement from that day. Late Thursday night, I and my sister were washing clothes when my father came in. Myself and my sister were in the parking lot when I saw the car in the police picture that I initialed parked between the beat, or at least it looks like it says beat, I'm not sure, and the cars. The car was facing the woods. But here's the important part, the last sentence. I have seen the car here before. That is the part that tells you that that was not Elnora Griffin's car in that parking lot. There's no indication that she had a relationship or knew anyone who lived in that apartment complex. And also, I've been to that apartment complex, and it's huge. So even if she knew someone there, the odds of her parking right in that exact place are extremely unlikely. So the reality is that Jesse Nelson, who as you've seen his trial transcript, appears to be crazy, and also had motivation for telling the police what they wanted to hear, did say that he saw that car there and he'd never seen it before. But his stepson confirmed, who I believe was 17 at the time, that yes, there was a car that looked like that there, but I've seen that car here before. And in trial, he actually testified that when he saw it that night, it wasn't actually late at night. He said it was before it got dark. But no reason to confuse anybody with all of those details in this report. Now, if you get on the website and you're perusing this document, you're going to notice a paragraph where it talks about Mrs. Dews testifying before the grand jury. And for clarification's sake, Ed was indicted prior to this report, but then he was re-indicted in June of 94 after this report. And that's the indictment that I'm referring to. And your guess is as good as mine as to why they had to re-indict him. The report goes on to talk about the interview that Margie Jackson had with Dale Huckel at her house. It mentions when Ed was arrested. It goes into his priors from Oklahoma. And then it says, on July 28th, Edward went to work for Bob Norman. On September 8th, Mr. Norman found a large folding knife hidden behind the seat of his Ford 1920 series tractor that Edward had been using. Mr. Norman advised me that none of the other employees claimed the knife, and he believed it belonged to Edward. Mr. Norman advised me that he had fired Edward several days before because Edward had developed a bad attitude at work and only wanted to drive the tractor and do nothing else. The knife was analyzed, but no traces of blood were found, only that the knife had been sharpened. Now, I've been trying to track down this Bob Norman. I haven't been able to yet, but I'm still working on it. But I talked to Ed and Kelvin about this because Kelvin also worked for Bob Norman. And they both said that this is, believe it or not, bullshit. They both confirmed that Ed was fired. 
But Ed says that he was fired because Mr. Norman had heard about the pending murder charges and didn't want him working for him anymore. Kelvin tells me that Ed really didn't want to do a whole lot of work there. Now, the way this report is written, it would seem that Mr. Norman found this knife on the tractor Ed always worked on and called the police and turned it over. From what Kelvin tells me, that's not the way it went down. Kelvin says that the police came out to talk to Mr. Norman and wanted to check around the farm and places where Ed worked. And while searching around the tractors and things, the police found this knife. And keep in mind, the report says this happened on September 8th. That was over two weeks after Ed had already been arrested and was in jail. And Ed was fired prior to going to jail. So Ed had not been on that farm, on that tractor, for weeks prior to the police going out and obtaining that knife, however they got it. Now on the surface, it doesn't really matter. The forensic testing showed there was no blood on the knife, but it goes further to promote the narrative. A few paragraphs before, when talking about Ed's priors in Oklahoma, they mentioned a knife there. And then in this paragraph, they're sure to point out that Ed was in possession of this other knife. Huckel's is trying to make clear that Ed likes to work with a knife and keep one with him. Even though if that was supposedly his knife, he just left it on a tractor somewhere and didn't take it home with him when he got fired. Now before I move on, I want to bump back up a few paragraphs where Huckel is mentioning the scraping that was taken off of Ed's shoe. The paragraph reads, The feces samples were sent to the FBI to be analyzed and tests performed by Richard Ream of the FBI. And the results were that the feces sample from the house from Edward's shoe are of human origin. Now this is another BS statement. The first sentence reads, The feces samples were sent to the FBI. The feces samples. Remember that the sample was never identified as feces. Richard Ream didn't do any scientific testing to prove that. He never said that it was feces. It was never proven to be feces. But in this report, it is absolutely a feces sample. Then in the last page, Huckel puts a nice button on everything. The first paragraph reads, Upon interviewing Leonard Mosley, Miss Griffin's ex-fiancé, as to his whereabouts on July 22nd and July 23rd, Mr. Mosley advised that when he had gotten off of work at approximately 11 p.m. on the 22nd, he went home, located at, and gives his address, and went to bed. Mr. Mosley's ex-girlfriend, Angela Walker, who he had been allowing to stay in his house, was home and did know when he got there at approximately 12.10 a.m. and remained there the rest of the night. Mr. Mosley went to work at Tyler Pipe at his regular 11.30 a.m. to 11 p.m. shift on July 23rd. I interviewed Miss Walker after she had moved out of Mosley's house and felt she was telling the truth. Again, total BS. Mosley did tell him that he got home at 12.10, but Angela Walker did not verify his story. Remember, Angela Walker said he didn't get home until 12.45 a.m. Huckel's doing a good job at pointing out that he did a thorough investigation. There was only one other suspect, Leonard Mosley, and he has an airtight alibi, according to this report, and that all of the evidence neatly fits with Edward Eights. But it's just not true. I mean, this is just an absolute lie. Angela Walker did not verify Leonard Mosley's story. She directly impeached his alibi story by telling the police that he actually didn't get home until 35 minutes after he said that he did. Now, we only have trial testimony to go off of at this point, and until we get the actual interview transcripts from Angela Walker, that's what we have to go off of. But something just occurred to me. At trial, five years later, Angela Walker testified that she remembered specifically 
that the day after the murder, the next day, that Leonard left the house at 7 a.m. Remember, she said that she was supposed to go to work that day at 7 and Leonard forgot to wake her up. What's just occurring to me is why would that morning stick out in her mind? If you assume that Angela Walker is completely innocent and had nothing to do with this and neither did Leonard Mosley and neither of them know anything about it, why five years later would that morning, that next morning, stick out in her mind so strongly? Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For our last segment today, I want to talk about a document that I found in my own files on Monday. Monday afternoon, I was looking for another file, and I came across a document that said ISIS Investigations. Now, this is my own fault that I've never read this document. I got it in one of my trips to Tyler earlier in the summer when I went and visited Tony Hereford with ISIS Investigations. ISIS was the defense investigation team that was working on Ed's case. These are the people that were hired by his attorneys to investigate. When I met with Tony, he told me that they had tons of files on this case, but he wasn't sure where they were at. And we found out later that they were actually turned over on subpoena to the prosecutor in the middle of Ed's trial. He did find one document that he scanned in and gave to me. I renamed the document and threw it into a folder on my computer and have never looked at it since then. It was just buried there amongst the thousands of other documents. So Monday, I actually took the time to read this document, and I was blown away by what I found. There are two major issues here, and the first one relates to the scraping that was taken off of the bottom of Ed's shoe. Remember that one of the things that Ed had said was that there was an open sewer line between his grandmother's house and Johnny Pryor's house, and there was also an open sewer line at Elnora Griffin's house. Ed had said that if there was human feces on his shoe, that it could have been from him walking through that drain field area, which would make sense if it is indeed actually feces. Because as I've stated many times, when you look at that evidence bag and see what's in it, it looks like it's sand. It does not look like actual feces. Well, after reading this document, it's painfully obvious that Ed's attorneys failed him miserably. As we mentioned in the It's a Fecal Matter episode, Ed's attorneys already blew it with this sample from his shoes. It was Tom McLean who told the jury 16 times in his closing arguments that it was indeed human fecal material on Ed's shoe. And as if that wasn't bad enough, now after reading this document I know, they failed Ed even worse. Part of this document is Isis's own notes about what they did and when they did it, and it was their way of tracking their hours for billing. And in these notes... It says that shortly before the trial, Hereford met with Ed's attorneys 
and they told him to go out to the crime scene and videotape the area looking for an open sewer system. And in the narrative, it states that Tony Hereford first went to Johnny Pryor's house, and she said that she wasn't sure if she should let him take a videotape. She wanted to contact the DA first. He then went to Mrs. Dew's house, and she allowed him to videotape, and he states in this report that there was indeed an open sewer line between Mrs. Dew's house and Johnny Pryor's house, right in the path where Ed would have walked when he went down to the crime scene on the night Elnora's body was found. And he made a videotape showing this open sewer line. The next day, he went back to Johnny Pryor's house, and this time she allowed him to take a video, and he also noted that there was an open sewer line at Elnora Griffin's house. That means that according to this report, Ed's defense attorneys had two different videotapes that clearly displayed open sewer lines in the path that Ed would have walked in the night Elnora's body was found. And for some reason, they chose to never introduce this videotape at trial. At this point, I'm actually starting to wonder if Ed was right when he said he thought that his attorneys just gave up on him. The jury did not believe that there was human fecal material on his shoes because Dobbs did a great job of selling it. Ed's own attorneys convinced the jury that that was human fecal material on his shoes. And they had in their back pocket the whole time a simple way to demonstrate to the jury that there is an innocent explanation for having human fecal material on his shoes. And they never even introduced it. And that's not even the worst of it. And before I go forward, there's something that I want to point out to you guys that I'm not sure if you're aware of. Smith County, and I don't know if this is common throughout Texas or throughout the United States. I know it's not the situation here in Michigan where I live. But Smith County does not have public defenders. They have contract attorneys. Meaning that in Smith County, the attorneys that are appointed to people who can't afford their own are not on the county's payroll. They are private practice attorneys that are under contract with the county. And the reason that I say this is it seems to me that this is a recipe for disaster. You have private practice attorneys that have a county that will throw money at them and throw clients at them on a regular basis. Given what we know about Smith County, it would seem to me that it would not be in a contract attorney's best interest to continually go into court and beat the prosecutors. And I'm not making any accusations here. But it's something that needs to be put out there and that we need to consider, especially when you hear what else is contained in this document. Before I explain what's in this document, let me give you a really quick review. Francis Johnson was not only an alternate suspect proposed by the defense, but worse yet, his alibi that was presented at trial actually helped corroborate Kenny Snow's false testimony that the conversation with Ed and Francis never actually happened and that Ed was trying to get Kenny to lie for him. In that whole situation, Ed looked terrible. He had given this note to Kenny Snow that Kenny Snow says was a script and was asking Kenny to lie and say that he had this conversation with Francis, where Francis had told him that on the night of the murder that he was at Elnora's house. At that point, it's just Ed's word against Kenny's, and of course Ed wasn't testifying, so that's bad enough. But then when Francis Johnson got up there and Dobbs entered Exhibit 137 into evidence that showed that Francis Johnson had paid room and board during the week of the murder in Georgia, the conclusion was that there was no possible way that Francis Johnson could have been in Texas at the time of the murder because he was in Georgia. So that eliminated him as an alternate suspect, and worse yet, it made crystal clear that Ed was lying and that Kenny Snow was telling the truth. Now you all know that a couple of months ago we broke down Exhibit 137 and discovered that in no way does it alibi Francis Johnson, because he paid room and board to that halfway house for the entire year in 1993, 
and by his own testimony, he admitted that he was in Tyler several times during that period. But of course, the jury never heard that either, because Ed's defense attorney didn't take the time to break down that document, which isn't all on them, because Dobbs sprung that on them in the trial. It's clear in the transcripts that they had never seen that document before. So that's the breakdown of what we knew up to this point. Ed says that he has a conversation with Francis Johnson in jail. Kenny Snow says that he didn't, and Ed tried to get him to lie. Francis Johnson goes into court with a document that seems to show that he has an alibi confirming the fact that Ed was lying. Now let's jump back to this document that I found. The reason that I just tucked this document away and never really looked at it was because the first page says that it is the transcripts from an interview with a man named William Scott. And at the time, I had no idea who William Scott even was. And since his name never really came up, I didn't pay it much mind. But when I saw it this time, it reminded me that I have read it somewhere before. So I went back to the trial transcripts. In the very first witness that was called by the prosecution, the first witness in the entire trial was Johnny Pryor. In Johnny's testimony, she talked about Francis Johnson working on the pond. But it was unclear to the jury when this was done. Johnny couldn't even remember when her husband died. She was saying she thought maybe it was 1992. She wasn't really sure. She knows that Frances was out there after her husband died, but she can't remember which summer it was. It just wasn't very clear, and the defense didn't push her on this at all, which is shocking in and of itself. It would have been very easy for them to get the death certificate and find out exactly when Johnny's husband died. That might have helped refresh her memory, and Johnny might have came right out and said that it was for sure the summer of 1993 when Francis was working on the pond. But they didn't do that. But aside from that, as I was reading through her testimony, I came across this exchange. This was during cross-examination. Question. And Francis Johnson came out there and did some work on it. He's referring to the pond here. Answer. Francis, he had two guys with him. I don't know William Scott who you're talking about, but Francis did it. I know him. Seems like he had two guys with him that came out and put the cement in the pole. And I think they put, I think around the edges because it wouldn't hold water. They put some men around the edges of the pond where the bank is. There's that name again, William Scott. William Scott is one of the people that helped Francis dig the pond. And then I went back to my notes from July of this year when I was investigating Francis Johnson, and I see that I have a card for William Scott. I was trying to find him because I thought if he was out there working with Francis, he might be able to give us some answers. But none of the contact information that I could find for William Scott checked out. The phone numbers didn't work. He didn't live at the address listed. I have no idea where William Scott is, so I kind of gave up on it. But then this Monday, I find this ISIS document where Tony Hereford interviewed William Scott and kept a transcript of the conversation. The conversation was pretty short, so I'm going to read to you some of the transcript. Tony asks, you ever do any dirt work? William says, my cousin. Tony says, your cousin does it? Who's your cousin? William says, Francis Johnson. Oh, that's your cousin? He's the one that dug the pond. Uh-huh. Did you help him with it? Uh-huh. I just come over there a time or two. Okay, do you remember when exactly that was in relation to something that we can tie a date to? I know it's been back in like 93 or something. All I know is it was in the summer. In the summer, you don't know if it was the summer of 93 or 92? This is 97. It had to be 93. You think it was in the summer of 93? William Scott. Had to be. Tony asks, would that be after the lady's husband was dead? Do you know? 
That's not the murder. He died in his sleep or whatever, but, and they're referring to Johnny's husband there. William says, "Uh uh-huh. Tony says, my understanding was that the funeral was in January of 93. So, key point here, the defense investigators know exactly when that funeral was. It was in January of 93. William replies, yeah, he was dead. He was already dead? Uh Uh-huh. So do you think it was sometime then between January and the summer of 93? Yes. Tony goes on to say, so you think he was already dead by then? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Okay, and you just went over there with Francis a couple of times while he was working on it or something. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, did you ever meet a lady named Elnora Griffin? Uh, yeah, that stay in the house there. In the house or the trailer? The brick house. Well, she ended up living in the trailer. I think for a while she lived in that house for Johnny. Oh, no, well, that's Johnny. Tony says, it's Johnny's cousin, Elnora. Johnny's a female. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony asks, and her cousin from Dallas is Elnora, and she lived, I think she lived in the house for a little while, and then she moved into the trailer. Elnora I'm talking about. Did you know her? William says, no, I didn't know her. I'd seen her a time or two when I was over there. Tony says, "Uh uh-huh. You wouldn't remember when that would have been. William says, well, that was this same, same time that he was digging the pond. Tony asks, okay, how long you think he worked on that pond? Week, two weeks, month? I don't know how big it is. I've never been over there. It's just, I guess, I don't know, man. To tell you the truth exactly, but I would imagine, I don't know, 15, 20 days, three weeks maybe? Okay, do you know Um, at that time was Francis on probation over in Atlanta? I don't know. I didn't know that until he went back to jail. I didn't never know he was on probation. Tony says, yeah, because he was supposed to be at a halfway house there in Atlanta. We're trying to figure out how he was here and there at the same time. I don't know. I don't know nothing about that. Don't know nothing about that. No. But you know when y'all were digging the pond, Elnora was still alive, right? Because you saw her. Yeah. It was before she died. Yeah. This transcript tells us two things. Number one, it confirms that Francis Johnson was indeed in Tyler, just like Ed said he was in the summer of 1993. He says that he's sure it was a summer. He's sure it was 1993. It was definitely after Johnny's husband was dead which was January of 93, and he remembered seeing Elnora in the trailer while he was there digging the pond, which the only summer Elnora ever lived in that trailer was 1993, right before she was killed. In the other, more disturbing thing that we know is that Ed's attorneys had this information. They are the ones that had sent the defense investigators out to find William Scott. And when Tony left, William was friendly, he gave him his address and his phone number and his date of birth, And Ed's attorneys never followed up on it, and they didn't call him at trial. Can you imagine if at that trial, right after Francis Johnson showed his alibi, supposedly proving that he was in Atlanta, Georgia, and therefore could not have been the one to kill Elnora Griffin, and right after that, the defense called William Scott, his own cousin, to get on the stand and testify that he is absolutely positive that he was digging that pond with Francis Johnson in the summer of 93. Had that happened, the jury would not have went into the jury box thinking, no, knowing that Edward Aits was a liar. And now they would have seen a suspect on the stand who intentionally falsified an alibi right in front of them. All of a sudden, Francis Johnson starts looking a lot better for this murder, and Edward Aits starts to look a lot more innocent and honest. This system failed Edward Aits in every possible way imaginable. 
The police botched the investigation and fabricated evidence. The district attorney came into trial with nothing more than smoke and mirrors, and his own defense attorneys threw this case for him, whether intentionally or otherwise. And the end result is an innocent man has been rotting away in prison for 18 years while his wife and children sit at home alone. Thank God there is an army of people now reinvestigating this case and working to get Ed out of that prison cell. Because when his life was on the line back in 1993, no one seemed to give a shit. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. The executive producer is Michael Bussing. Opening music today was To the Top by Score Squad. All of the other music in today's episode was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Mueller, and Sarah Hoyt for transcribing all the episodes and sending them out to Ed every week. And as always, I want to thank all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send in new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Don't forget about the Friday follow-up episodes. You have from now, Sunday morning, until Tuesday night to email, Facebook, or tweet with hashtag 242 with any questions, comments, or theories on the case. We'll be taking calls this week on Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at 269-224-2833. Make sure that you're keeping up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>